Good evening, Kibiskane. This is Mac on the Rock, the Pontiff. 94.5 FM Blink Radio. Yes, Blink once. Yes, I said it. And Blink twice. Oh my God, you missed it. This afternoon, I'd like to uh, congratulate uh, Ted Cruz for running for president. I think he's a remarkable senator, high intellect, solicitor general of Texas. I think he'd make a great president. I'm in a quagmire personally because I've met all three. Two I've had uh, uh, serious considerations with throughout my life, Jeb Bush being uh, one of them, Marco Rubio being the other, and now recently I got had an opportunity for one-on-one, -on one-hour meeting with uh, Ted Cruz. I must say the three of them would just be mind-boggling to see them win. The problem is, who do I prefer in a primary? You know, me being... You know, Republican and conservative and religious, religious right, Roman Catholic, you know, I'm being pulled from all directions. It really is uh, odd to me that we have so much talent in the United States and so much of that talent is in the Republican Party. All three of them are exceptional leaders. Jeb Bush uh, goes back um, almost to my late teens when I first met him. It's very personal to me because uh, uh, my older brother uh, did business with him for years in the private sector before he even considered being governor in the foundation and the founding of uh, Colina Bush Klein Realty, part of the Colina Group Enterprises. Armando Colina being the, the, the main owner and financier, and Jeb Bush and my brother were involved in real estate brokerage together. So it's per very personal to me. What can I say? I would love to see Jeb as president of the United States even though he's a moderate Republican, because I don't believe that Republicans are really moderate. You're either conservative or you're not conservative. In Marco Rubio, I've never seen anybody that young speak that well, that articulate, that off the cuff, succinctly, um, almost at the level of a Ronald Reagan who had to have a career in B-movies in Hollywood to be able to talk as well as he did. I mean, this, this Marco Rubio, uh, I'm telling you, when I saw his God is Real speech as Speaker of the House in Florida, and he floors it with, uh, you know, a copy of a, of, a, of a Richard Nixon speech, but, you know, when he ends it with, you know, God is real, and he forgives us all, and uh, most people in politics, the biggest problem they have is they, you know, they want to be somebody. Well, if that's the case, then let's do something. Back in a minute, let's do something. This is uh, my last year of speakership, and let's do something. And he, he was bold enough to uh, just basically, uh, you know, floor Florida with, uh, well, you know, let's, let's eliminate, you know, the real estate tax. The only problem is that the majority of residents of Florida are renting. So, hello, can't go that far. Uh, it was all drowned out in the rhetoric anyway, but that was pretty bold. So back to Ted Cruz, him running for president today. You know, I love to, I felt you know, really important. You know, I got that uh, notice on my phone. You know, midnight tonight, you'll get a tweet. And I look forward to the tweet. Tweet this and tweet that. I'm not much of a Twitter uh, user, but, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty cool that he, you know, announced his candidacy for president. You know, he'll eat people alive in debates. You know, he was a debate champion. I believe he was a debate champion in high school and in college. 
So a formidable candidate. I mean, we're not talking about happy-go-lucky here. You know, this guy can throw some gas. I'm talking about nuclear gas here. You know, high-intellect guy. He's had to go before the Supreme Court, I believe, on six to eight occasions. One of them was against the Bush administration, who had appointed him as Solicitor General in Texas. So uh, I believe it was a case concerning a death row inmate, uh, an illegal who was convicted of uh, a murder in Texas, if I remember correctly. Call me in, of course. You remember, you can always call me in and correct me, because I uh, have seen your moments. But anyway, this gentleman uh, uh, fought for the, on behalf of the state of Texas to keep this illegal in Texas and execute him in Texas and not deport him. And the uh, somehow. You know, the Bush administration was taking the opposite side that he should be deported and have Mexico execute him. Well, Mexico wouldn't have executed him. I don't even think uh, Mexico has death row, and I don't believe they execute anybody. But Texas does. Texas is number one. Florida's number two. We live here in Florida, so we know what executions are. Anyway, so uh, seeing him run for president is absolutely... And really impressive. So I'm going to be happy either way. All three of them are, are fantastic candidates. And I'm not prepared to tell you which one I would vote for. I'm going to have to wait and see. I'm going to communicate with all three and uh, probably contribute to their campaigns, all three of them. And uh, of course, uh, hope that one of the three wins. But nevertheless, it's an exciting time to be a conservative because the progressive movement is finally, finally, finally obviously a failure. I mean, it's finally obvious. The whole progressive movement from Theodore Roosevelt in his square deal speech after he lost the 1912 election to Woodrow Wilson. In fact, he cost the Republicans the election period. I mean, he slammed his vice president, Howard Taft, in such a manner that even Howard was depressed. Howard Taft, who was the sitting president, for all intents and purposes, had done some good things. Not entirely good things, but uh, good things, you know. One of the worst things he did was uh, literally advocate for the income tax at 1%, thinking that it would make the uh, Democrats look bad. Well, guess what? It ended up passing. Not only did it pass as a law, it ended up passing as a constitutional amendment. By the time Woodrow Wilson was in, 16 was passed. A nightmare of a law that is now 34%, 36%, 38%. In some cases, 42%. Not to mention capital gains taxes, sales taxes, real estate taxes, property taxes, um, permit taxes, toll taxes, you name it. But at the end of the day, by, by the time you die, you're paying 70% of your earned income in one form of tax or another. That's for another night. I would love to have the evidence that that is true. It's no different. I've always said in a, in a book I wrote called The Fiscals, I make a claim that uh, the progressive movement sought the 70% of earned income of the United States uh, taxpayer. And at the same time, more or less, at the, almost exactly at the same time, Mao Zedong, with his state capitalism approach to communism in China, was also proposing the same. Only he was blunt about it. He just flat out said it. You know, the state, the, you know, the, the, the communist state of Republic of China, the People's Republic of China, 
was literally going to leave only 30% on the table for innovators and, and creative-minded people to drive the entire Chinese economy and enslave the rest. Well, at the same time, there's a similarity, you know. I mean, look at it uh, poetically. His program was called The Giant Leap Forward. It cost millions of people their lives. You know, an agricultural society that he was allowing to have a certain segment of the population you know, involved in urbanization and um, at the cost of you know, huge amounts of people in starvation out in the countryside. Nevertheless, his giant leap and our progressive movement, you see they both are symbolic of motion, like you know, the motion in the ocean, or the big ocean that separates us, doesn't separate the philosophy much. We were progressively screwing the American people by stealing 70% from the 30s till today, but the you know People's Republic of China have been screwing their people since the same amount of time. Now, it wasn't obvious to anybody, but uh, Mao basically made a pronouncement. You know, I believe it was uh, 54, 52, 54, where he makes uh, you know the famous uh, you know paper tiger declaration, paper tiger speech, where he pretty much flat out says that state capitalism is, is in it for 70%. So you pretty much got to understand that um, my segue to these, these real realities that in a free market capitalist society, ultimately sucking 70% of what you and I earn in our lifetime, it's a pretty unfortunate situation. What's really unfortunate about this situation is that ultimately when you tax the people like taxing them, you see it in Western Europe, when you tax people, it becomes a mechanism for low birth rates. And when you have a society, you know, promised things like Social Security, retirement, and then, you know, years later it's not enough to retire on, you basically eliminated all their savings. They leave nothing in their inheritance. So social mobility is slowed. Their children are taxed to the gills. Most of them won't be as educated as their parents were, yet we're more modern, more urbanized, more lazy. And guess what? We don't reproduce. It's just that simple. We just don't reproduce. So what happens about that? What is it that we do about that? There's nothing we do. We just eventually uh, have declining birth rates. And then there's no one to pay for yesterday's entitlement. So when I retire, my kids, uh, there isn't enough kids to have a decent living to pay Social Security so that I can retire on Social Security. And when you see the actual payment of Social Security, you know, 800 bucks, 1700 bucks a month, you can't live off that. You gotta be perfectly healthy to live off $800 to $1,700 a month. Maybe somebody gets 2,500 bucks. I wonder, someone call in and tell me what's the maximum social security payment you can receive? And tell me what, what that number is, because I'm telling you, uh, if you're living a, a decent life and an affluent life, you gotta cut your budget the minute you retire because you can't afford to live the way you were living before. That's happening to a lot of Americans everywhere. And what's the object of living the American dream? 
What's the object? I mean, what's the reason for it? It's gotta be social mobility. It just has to be. There's a reason why we are all in this together. And that's to make sure that our children live a better life than we did. That can only be, that could only be the meaning of life. Leave something behind. Leave something of value so their kids don't have it as rough as you do. Don't let the Democrats and the liberals and all the statists out there envy, you know, those who inherit stuff. Hey man, you know, it's just like winning a championship. The next year is a real bitch to maintain the championship. You gotta defend your title, you know what I mean? Well, when you inherit, it's very tough. There's a lot of pressure to maintain the business that you inherited, to learn the business that you inherited, to reinvest the business that you inherited. But don't let the government steal it from you. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. The average, you know, upper middle class person is being slammed by the government by 40% inheritance taxes. Guess what? Why force your children to have it twice as hard as you? You should educate them. You paid for their private school. You paid for other people's public school. And you shouldn't uh, have an obligation to leave something behind so that society as a whole is better off. Isn't that what social mobility is all about? Why is that lost? Progressives thought that they were doing that in their war on poverty. I mean, the New Deal, that was, it was, that's what it was about. They claimed it was to increase the social mobility of the United States. Well, to some degree, you can claim that they did, you know, considering the floor had dropped out in the Great Depression, Social Security might have worked. But why didn't they have the vision and the honesty to make it means-tested from the very beginning? I think the average person would not uh, curtail their abilities to make it in life because if they did, they would, they would have to forfeit their Social Security because they got wealthy. I think most people would rather be wealthy and be proud to say, I, I don't accept Social Security because it doesn't, it's not for me, it's for people who just didn't make it. Sometimes, you, you know, wealth is luck. It is. Sometimes just the harder you work, the luckier you get. And there's nothing you can say about anything other than, hey man, I got really lucky. God bestowed a lot of grace on me. I have children that didn't have disabilities. I had children that were smart. I had children that were healthy. You know, it allowed me to prosper. Sometimes it allowed me to just not even be home and to raise them because I'm working like a dog. You know, and they, they came out all right. They didn't end up in the streets. They stayed, you know, you know, as a home. They, they stayed, they, they developed good friendships, went off to school, and, and why shouldn't they be able to expand my business? Why shouldn't I be able to give it to them in whole, 100%? Why should I be taxed the minute I'm dead? And guess what? That kind, there's not room for error there. The children lose 40% of what you earned. Hey man, don't they have sweat equity in your business? Weren't they not being raised while you were busting your butt? Come on, man. They invested in your business too. Sometimes you just weren't there. I know that when I was a star basketball player in high school, man, sometimes I would hit the winning shot, look around, my father was nowhere. In the gym, he was working, trying to build the business. And he was in the business in, in perishable produce. You know how hard it is to make a living in perishable produce when everything you're selling is rotting? Every day it's closer to rot. You gotta sell it now. You receive it, unload it, put it in your warehouse, put it back in your trucks, 
delivered in smaller packages. And every day that price goes down if you don't sell it today. And you gotta keep the money, save the money to buy more product in huge quantities. Man, my dad started out of the backseat of a, of a 52 Mercury. My God, and look, he ended up re retiring at the age of 50. He saved every penny. He left me a considerable amount of money. We are first generation American Cubans. He was Cuban American. This is what excites me going back to the Ted Cruz story. His father was also Cuban. I live that American promise. I see it in Ted Cruz. I see it in Marco Rubio. Both people, both of these senators have arrived alive. Like they used to say in Florida, arrive alive. These guys have arrived. They're U.S. senators. It says a lot about uh, the Cuban-American immigration in this country. It says a lot about the American Cuban that follows. For all who understand the two, I insist on being called an American Cuban. Because I was born here. If anything, you know, I'm like uh, the turn of the century, you know, Americans had kind of always felt that Cuba should be a state, the 51st state. Perhaps they should have been. I mean, they'd be better off, no doubt. There's no debate on that. The Cuban people didn't want that. They wanted their own nation. That's understandable, too. You know, look at Puerto Rico. You know, they allowed us to you know, embrace them and hug them, and now they consume more rum than milk. And they are 100% entitlement society. I mean, unemployment there is just sitting in the 20s for I don't know how many years. I mean, they've got more problems than you can possibly imagine in Puerto Rico. So maybe the Cubans were right in wanting their own nation but at a great, 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 great cost. You know? A tremendous cause. I mean, communism in Cuba? Oh my God. <laughs> Boom! Very sad. Very sad. Poor reflection of the United States. Poor reflection of the people of Cuba. Tyranny 90 miles away. Once the great people of Cuba who actually financed the Battle of Yorktown. Literally. That's uh, also for another day. I'd love to tell that story one day. The story of Admiral Bernardo Galvez ultimately became the most important asset in George Washington's Continental Army. I feel like telling the story right now, but I won't. Go back to Ted Cruz and Sprite Lightning Marco Rubio. Cruz into the White House. Ted Cruz into the White House. He stood up, remember. Keep in mind. Keep in mind. He shut down the government over Obamacare, and he was absolutely right. And what did our rhinos do, those moderate Republicans? What did they do? They funded Obamacare. They've won two elections. We've given them a mandate. The United States has given Republican Party a mandate, and they're folding their tent, and they didn't defund Obamacare. All they had to do was defund it, Gave, give Obamacare's infrastructure no money. Now it's creeping into our lives at a tune of $5.7 billion to the U.S. economies thus far. And the mandates aren't even in place yet. I believe the mandates take place as soon as, guess what? Barack Obama leaving office. That's when all the penalties start, you know, affecting the U.S. economy. By 2020, I bet you it implodes. I really do. I bet you the U.S. economy implodes right when the Republicans are making a name for themselves. 
I expect their victories in 2016. I expect uh, a minor blowout market correction in 2016. And usually what happens when Republicans step into the White House, they've got to mop up a lot of the uh, of Democrats' mess. And, uh, and it's a fact of life. Uh, you know, Bush inherited Clinton's mess. And some people say Obama inherited Bush's mess. Well, guess what? Sorry to tell you, but the, the, the changes to the Glass-Steagall Act in the Graham-Rudman Amendment was passed by Bill Clinton. I mean, Bubba passed it. Graham-Rudman Act allowed insurance companies to get into the commodities market. They expanded the Community Investment Act by yours truly, Jimmy Carter. And it just allowed you know, this derivative market, you know, mortgage-backed security market, take over the marketplace. I mean, the mortgage-backed securities, when you think about it, it was just a bunch of toxic mortgage loans. None of them were of value yet. You know, you gave the opportunity for Wall Street to create a product that could be sold. What does, what does Wall Street do? They make commissions, man. They just wrapped them up, tied up all these mortgages into these giant bundles called derivatives. And they sold it worldwide to the tune of like 11 or 17 trillion. I mean, after 1 trillion, who cares what, what 17 trillion is? But by the time the banks had to be bailed out because there was just no money, all these uh, uh, derivatives showed no promise whatsoever. People, you know, took out insurance when they, they, uh, they purchased uh, mortgage-backed securities. And guess what? They all came due all at once. And the insurance companies were left holding the bag. AIB was the one that was held the bag the most. What did the American government do? Well, you and I were scared stiff in the 2008 clash, crash, clash, crash, crash, clash, clash, clash. It was a good band, by the way, the clash. But anyway, all they did was just hand it off to Freddie and Fannie as if it just didn't happen. All they did was sell it to Freddie and Fannie, a government, the largest home mortgage insurer. Sorry, the largest home mortgager, not insurer, mortgagor. They just grabbed it, toxic loans, just sitting there, just foreclosed on. And what I always wondered is, why did Bush do it with six weeks out in that election? It guaranteed Obama's victory by a lot. Because I think he, he thought the McCain's um, people were going to prosecute all these bankers, as they all should have been. He knew that McCain would probably spend the first 100 days, you know, prosecuting bank, central bankers and, 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 and thrifty folks who made a ton of money in this toxic environment of finances. It's really sad. But nevertheless, the Graham-Rudman Amendment almost diluted almost made ineffectual the Glass-Steagall Act. And the Glass-Steagall Act was passed after the Great Depression. So the Glass-Steagall Act is one that separated banking and its roles in our society so that they're, you know, so the banks couldn't hide behind them each other and fund things that they really are not apt to fund in the name of profit. And that's what they call unfettered capitalism. But how come Bill Clinton doesn't get the, the blame for it? Why was it Bush? I was a Bush that got slammed when it was the Graham-Rudman Amendment. And the Graham-Rudman uh, was an amendment or act? I forgot already. I'm now trying to um, let me get a glass of water. So I'll be back in a moment. This is Blink Radio WSQF. 
If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.